Welcome to the Touching Into Presence podcast. This podcast is for people who are interested in body work, empowerment, and somatic-based practices. I am Nikki Olson. I'm Andrew Rosenstock. We are certified rolfers. Collectively, we're trained in various movement and bodywork therapies with an emphasis on somatic awareness and client resilience. Through conversations, our goal is to share and explore mind-body paradigms to offer empowerment possibilities. We're grateful to be in conversation with Dr. Biko Mandela-Gray. Dr. Gray's work operates at the nexus and interplay between continental philosophy of religion and theories and methods in African-American religion. His research is primarily on the connection between race, subjectivity, religion, and embodiment, exploring how these four categories play on one another in the concrete space of human experience. He is also interested in the religious implications of social justice movements. He's currently working on a book project that explores how contemporary racial justice movements, like Black Lives Matter, demonstrates new ways of theorizing the connection between embodiment, religion, and subjectivity. Today's talk, we open a conversation into a why is body work largely a bi-white, four-white practice. Dr. Gray shares some historical and philosophical reasons why he believes this may be the case. Really, we dive into so much that it just really needs to be listened to. There's a ton to unpack from this one, and we're happy to share this for yours and the world's benefit. So with that, let's begin our talk. Hey, Vico. It is good to see you all. I'm here for you all for, I guess, about an hour or so. Um, Basically, I heard you on the SLM podcast. It was what I was wanting to hear because I was hearing so much that didn't resonate with me in a lot of ways. And not just because I am white and it, clearly I am white in case this, this isn't the reflection coming off. I am opaque, but the, uh, <laughs> there was something in the rhetoric that wasn't what I, I wasn't connecting with. And then when I heard you speak, I was like, Oh yeah, this makes sense. And it's actually, it's very similar with um, like John uh, McWhorton. I don't know if you know who John mm-hmm. McWhorton is. And I, I feel like it's probably the fact that you guys both are, um, have philosophy backgrounds that I think that there's something about being able to to think greater than most of our guests have actually been white and most of our listeners are white because it, the body work is a relatively for white by white and we don't think it should be and we want to find how do we how do we make it an inclusive and I just spoke entirely for Nikki so I can actually let her say something <laughs> no I'm just really thrilled to to hear to learn and to hear what you have to say. And um, it is, has been a big question in our work, especially in light of Black Lives Matters and how just how, even with where political world is right now, how there's all this division. And it's been easy, maybe from a white perspective to just kind of go along with like, well, this is what I do. This is how I live my life. and. Um, but realizing that if we really are being authentic and want equality, then we have to be asking questions of how do we, how do we get more involved? And, and also curious of maybe why isn't our body work more diverse with different races 
I think sometimes with, maybe with religion, we might have a little bit more diversity, but definitely not with race. And yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll say a couple things. So uh, don't ever, I want you all to know at the beginning, my resting face just looks angry. I'm actually usually not angry. I'm just listening to you all. Um, so that's the first thing. I, you will be able to tell very clearly when I'm frustrated. Uh, but my, my, my resting face just is serious. It's not... Negative. I, I will say a couple of things. One, I don't know why um, body work is not something that is, I can't answer that question. I can't explain it for you. What I can provide um, just to get the conversation started is that this is body work seems to be a novelty for white people because white people have never had to grapple with the reality of their body, the materiality of their body in ways that particularly black folks have had to since uh, since our arrival here in the West and specifically in the United States. I say that to say there's a few scholars who say this, uh, and it's a little work that I've been doing philosophically, is that we have always been reduced to our bodies. Right. And so so in other words, we are we are nothing more than our bodies. We are nothing more than these organs that are essentially siphoned for profit. Um, and so when you have that kind of relationship or that historical or genealogical relationship to your flesh, to your body, it becomes difficult. Um, it becomes difficult to find different ways to relate to this thing. Uh, that doesn't mean that that doesn't mean that people don't relate to their bodies in incredible ways. Black people have, of course, done hip hop. We have danced. We have sung. We have done all of those things. We have run. We have played sports. We have taught classes. We have preached. We have done all of these in interesting cultural productions and produced some incredible things on the basis of these things that we call bodies. The problem, though, is that more often than not, that's where the conversation begins and ends specifically for black people. And I'm only talking I'm not talking at like a subjective like feelings level. I'm talking at, at, at an analytic historical level. Right. So if uh, Catherine McKittrick, who's a scholar in Canada, she says that that actually blackness enters the modernity like black people into modernity through the ledger right through the through the counting and commodification of bodies and what this ultimately does is that blackness enters the conversation in the west a conversation in the west that's structured by freedom democracy equality and opportunity blackness enters that conversation by way of ledgers and insurance um, contracts and 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 essentially and essentially property relations. So all of the freedom, the justice, the democracy, that is all propped up by the commodification of what we like to call black bodies. I say that to say that like for me, and I hope I'm making sense, I say that to say for me, um, that that's that's something that has been um, has been really, really difficult for me in recent times. So it's it, I, what I was going to say is so there's this there's this artist, uh, Beyonce's little sister, or actually Solange is actually Beyonce, his younger. Yes, yeah, so Solange is Beyonce's younger sister. And she wrote a song um, called Weary. And one of the lines in the song is I'm weary with the weight of the weight of the world. And the bridge goes, I'm going to go look for my body. I'll be back real soon. And what happens is, is on the one hand, we're reduced to our bodies. This is why, for example, Tamir Rice um, is described as being 5'8 um, and 185 pounds, because it doesn't really matter how old he was. He was 12. But if you say 5'8, 185, you just, you're describing a body that's large enough to be threatening. So it didn't matter how old he was. You've just reduced him to his body. And so what happens in these moments is we lose access to our bodies when we go through these moments, or at least I do. I get incredibly anxious and have to go find myself. 
find my have to reground myself in this thing but where can i go that becomes the question where do i where do i go for a kind of refuge a kind of grounding um how do i find that i don't and i and all i can tell you is is that that is incredibly difficult work to do so that's the that's the sort of intro like and I don't want to say intro in the sense of like rudimentary, but that's like where I enter this conversation about blackness and embodiment is that we don't really, we've never really had access to our bodies in a way, uh, not, not politically anyway, we haven't had access to our bodies in a way that allows for us to do the kind of body work that it sounds like many folks like yourselves are doing. Yeah. Uh, I mean, first of all, I love the fact that you said that's the intro because I feel like I could take a few days just to kind of sit with that <laughs> and compound it. To some extent, it's like, oh yeah, that's so obvious. And to some extent, it's like, why? And this is what, I, what for me, where I've been a lot in this Black Lives Matter, all this sort of thing is like, oh shit, I never thought of it that way before. I never had to. I'm white. I grew up Jewish. I would say, okay, there's a slight difference there, but that's just maybe me trying to fit in. I live some time in the Caribbean. Okay, that's still me trying to like, oh, I can understand. No, I can't. Especially that ledger, that really sunk into me in such a way that is, again, so obvious, but shit, I never even thought of it that way. I don't usually cuss on the podcast, so now people are hearing how I really speak. And so it's it's interesting because you were saying like, yeah, you don't you don't necessarily know where to go or how to go. And that's maybe because my nature is to be a problem solver. It's like, okay, well, we have this issue. How do we go? And, it, and so part of it I'm, I'm hearing is if you don't know where you can go to find that, to have that space of um, calm, of, of, of embodiment in your own life, there, I don't want to say there should be, I don't like the word should, but I use it all the time, but there should be a way where all people have access to to safety, to feeling in their body, their body not being a ledger, their body not being a, I mean, I'm thinking of like the athletics where it's like that their body, they're not their mind, they're like, how well can they run? How well can they shoot? How much money can they win for us? There should be ways where things are. And if there isn't, well, now's a sure as how good time to start getting it out, out there. You know, my background's in meditation a lot as well as body work. And I, I've seen in the yoga community a lot of wonderful things coming out for, for Black, by Black, or BIPOC um, as well stuff, while also a lot of that struggling with a way of, if we're creating more separation, aren't we creating more separation? And still trying to struggle within that, how do we have spaces I heard a teacher the other night who's uh, the president of the Black Yoga Alliance, and I left that saying, okay, I want to be a member. Clearly, I, I can't because I'm, I'm white, but I want to be an ally or whatever that word means. I want to find ways that to support these people, even though it's not about me, just to support, to provide places. I know that's one sort of place. I, I don't know. How do you see starting to build this dialogue, how to, to, to get people knowing this? I think, I mean, I think you have to start. I mean, it's it's a... So, I mean, I appreciate your vulnerability and your honesty here. A couple of things. I don't see it so much as separation. Uh, I don't see the separation so much as honesty. I think there's a particular way that, um, and I don't even think of it as like different experiences so much as different receptions and different framing. So I'll give you a good example of this. Um, Brianna Taylor, I'm sure you all have been following this at this point. Uh, Brianna Taylor was, um, you know, brutally killed in her own home. 
Uh, and uh, and we just we got the ruling a couple of weeks ago where people are uh, where all of a sudden what we notice in the midst of that conversation and I'm going somewhere with this so just just hop in the car and ride with me um, what we noticed what we noticed in that ruling was ultimately that the crime actually wasn't killing her. I'm gonna say that one more time. The crime was actually missing her. Like the crime was because the officers had bad aim and didn't hit the body they intended to hit. So when you, so so when, a, and, and the AG who happens to be a black guy, which is one thing that we can talk about all day, but uh, but my point here is that the, uh, the Attorney General, Daniel Cameron makes it very clear, and he's absolutely right about this, justice has been served. One of the things that makes it so difficult to have these conversations and to do this work is that I resonate so deeply when you say there should be spaces for us to have refuge. And yet I live in a world where what it means for me to have refuge would actually entail the entire dissolution of the of the status quo as it as it stands right now. So on the one hand, yes, let's find those places of refuge. Let's find those openings of connection. Of, um, of groundedness, of, of solidity. Of, I do a bit of meditation myself and, and those are the moments where I do find, find grounding. And yet in, in some of my more tumultuous moments, my body reminds me that if I step outside, 6'1", 240 plus pounds with long locks on my head, that I am immediately going to be understood, not as a professor of religion at a top 50 university, but instead understood as, as a threatening body. The very thing that grounds me is also the very thing that could kill me and is also the very thing that could justify my demise. And so I, 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 the only thing that I can say is, is that I don't know. I, I think the starting point is, is, is us first realizing that what happened with Breonna Taylor and what happened with George Floyd's killer, Derek Chauvin, being out on bail, that's what the country thinks should happen. Cops are doing their jobs and they're being rewarded for doing their jobs. And so if we don't if we don't start there, it becomes difficult to think about how we can find other possibilities, because if we're not honest with ourselves about, yeah, this is what we want right? as a country. This is what we continually want. This is what we need. This is what we desire. If we don't start there. We, I don't know how we find other possibilities of, of connection, um, of the kinds of connections that you're naming, the kinds of possibilities and opportunities uh, for grounding, for, for community, for sociality that you're, you're, you're naming and you're yearning for. So I think that's, that's one of the hardest lessons for white people to understand, right? That like, especially white people who want to do what we might call accomplice work or ally work is that they want to maintain, and this is not about you all specifically, this is just a sort of a general thing. They want to change the world, but they don't want to change the world, if that makes sense, right? They want to change the world, but a discourse on defunding or abolishing the police becomes a bridge too far. But we've tried everything else. Officers have huge technological mechanisms for accountability, um, and yet, we are still gunned down at first sight. We are still reduced to the bodies that need the work that you all are, are pushing for. And so I think that's my way of, of sort of just hopping in and saying, I'm with you. I think the starting point for us is a profound and not just sort of intellectual or rhetorical assent to this claim, but a profound recognition 
that what happens to me if I'm killed, what happened to Breonna Taylor, what happened to Terrence Crutcher, what happened to Botham John, Tamir Rice, Ayanna Stanley Jones, Mike Brown, Alton Sterling, Walter Scott, Freddie Gray, like what happened to all of these folks, Rakia Boyd, Sandra Bland, the Charleston Knight, that's what's supposed to happen. And if we start there, then we can have another conversation about, well, how do we completely shift those norms so that we can begin to say, you know what? Nah, Andrew's absolutely right. This shouldn't happen. But what does a world look like where everyone recognizes that it should not happen that way? I know that was a lot, but that was my way of trying to trying to sort of like provide a thick response to, to this this constructive question that you're asking. I appreciate you not ask, asking the, well, what do we do? I don't know the answer to that question. Um, so yeah, that, but, I, but I do know that that's my, my way of saying, okay, can we at the very least, the philosopher in me, the teacher in me, can we at the very least lean into that what's happening in this world is what's supposed to happen? If we can start there, then we can, then we can realize, oh, no, the cops are actually pretty terrible as an institution, right? If we, if we start from the idea that they're doing their jobs, then we can go back and say, well, what does it mean that we applaud them for doing that thing that's killing all of these folks. And then, then what are the constructive possibilities there? And what are the constructive possibilities for those of us like yourselves who are doing the contemplative meditative work? Yeah, I think, um, I think um, unfortunately, so many people had to die for the world, white people, everybody, to, to start recognizing like, wait a minute, this is, this is out of hand. And, I think the difference I know for myself, instead of just being like, oh, that's terrible news, being like, okay, wait a minute, where, and it's been interesting for me because I definitely like the person who's like, how do I say this? I never really thought about people, like racist ideas. I've dated a rainbow of people. So, so in my innate consciousness, it just wasn't, wasn't there. But then what's been different for me in the recent times was being like, wait a minute, saying racist isn't, that's not good enough. Like really, really stepping into where are my privileges just by being born white. And of course, you know, I can kind of play into like, well, I'm a woman and, you know, uh, haven't gotten the same rights as, you know, men, but, but it's definitely been interesting kind of sitting here and thinking into recognizing, yeah, me, a white woman and a black woman could walk into the same grocery store and that the black woman might be judged being like, well, you know, suspicious of what she's doing where not so much me. And really, uh, really embodying that and being like, okay, how do, how do we start not accepting that anymore? And I think probably having conversations and when you were, when we first started talking and you were talking about how black people have had dance and, um, folk music, hip hop, <laughs> how their, their experience, their historical experience has brought so much beautiful art. And maybe 
maybe the white people need to get the body work because we're not, we don't have that expression as much as like, I mean, I have a funny story about, I used to live in New York City and I love movement. I love dance. And I, I wanted to take up African dance. And I walked into this studio and I am the, the only white person and trying to, to move my hips and to find that rhythm. And those ladies had so much patience with me. And I ended up, I never, I, I, did, I didn't feel comfortable there. <laughs> so it's just interesting. As much as I tried, I just could not get that groove where I... <laughs> I think, I mean, I would, I would say a few things. I think one is that, you know, on the one hand, you are not, there's a distinction between, in my mind, placing fault and, and, and taking responsibility. So I'm going to, I'll start there with, with the series of comments that you've just given, Nikki. I think the first thing I'll say is, is that it is no fault. It is by no fault of your own that your understanding of what constitutes racism or anti-blackness is limited to people's interpersonal mental states and motivations, right? That is actually a profound dimension of anti-blackness in the West is to understand racism as limited to people's particular motivations or even specific words that they say. And so one of the things that I just finished this, or I'm finishing up this manuscript, uh, I just, it'll, uh, for this book, and one of the things I try to make clear in the first, um, in the first chapter is that m two officers who killed two children, um, jo Joseph Weekly killed Ayanna Stanley Jones, I believe she was nine years old when she died, or seven, I can't remember, seven, she was seven when she died. He walked in her house and turned to the side. She was sleeping on the couch. She walked in the door. The couch is right next to the door. He turned to the right, shot her once in the head. She died immediately. Um, um, Timothy Lohman killed Tamir Rice within two seconds of the car stopping and arriving on the scene. Tamir Rice is playing with a BB gun. The orange cap had fallen off. And uh, the cop, Timothy Lohman, shoots before questions are asked. And one of the things that I try to do in that this chapter is I try to sit with like thoughtlessness, right? Not necessarily intentions. Neither Timothy Lohman nor Joseph Weekly would ever say that they're racist, right? They, neither one of them would ever lay claim to being, you know what, I'm racist. And Darren Wilson would claim that he wasn't racist, right? And he shot Mike Brown eight times, right? I mean, Alan Sterling, uh, Blaine Salamone, who shot Alan Sterling six times, would say that he's not racist. The current president would say that he's not racist. Um, all of these particular folks would lay claim to this. And they, in many ways, with the exception of our contemporary president, probably would be telling the truth to the best of their, to the best of their abilities. They are, they do not think that themselves racist. And so these are just these are just unfortunate incidents, right? Just unfortunate tragedies that have occurred. One thing that I try to do, not necessarily in the text, but one thing I'll share with you is that um, in my classes, I show folks a red um, octagon, just a red octagon, right? And so I'd ask folks, I've, I've actually known this, done this for police officers, like, what is this? And they're like a stop sign. And then I show them a stop sign, which is a red octagon with the word stop on it. And they say, and I say, well, what is that? And they say, oh, that's a stop sign. I said, but you notice the other thing that is a red octagon and you claimed that it was a stop sign. And I asked the next question, would you stop if you saw that red octagon placed on the side of a road, just sort of just sitting up there? And they said, of course we would. And I said, but that's not a stop sign. You would have misperceived and that would have been un unintentional. You would have stopped for no reason, right? But that's because we've been structured to stop at red octagons. 
And so we have been structured to misperceive a red octagon for being a stop sign. The structure of misperception is something that exceeds intention. And so I'm tr what I'm trying to get at here is that racism actually is not is rarely uh, an intentional act. Anti-blackness is rarely intentional. You, you, this is why the Proud Boys, the Boogaloo, all those folks are getting so much play because they're the extreme of it. Um, the actual, the, the, the more pernicious form is the Democratic Party playing to the middle because they want to win a political game and they have to. Black people aren't going to get them in the White House. And so what do they do? They appeal to middle range interests and assume black votes. I say all that to say that no one is intentionally racist. And, and so you, I don't play, place fault on you or anyone else for that. I do think at that point that you realize things, you, everyone else realize though, responsibility. Like, like how do I then retake, take responsibility for the things that I know I would say that this comes with, um, and you were mentioning the dance thing, this actually transitions me into that very well, that, that paying attention to the kind of patience, the kind of invitation that blackness offers, even in the midst of impossibly difficult circumstances, those black women were patient with you because that's what, un, what and it's not an essential trait, it's just, I've never known black women to not be that, that patient with folks before. The other part about it is too, is that blackness is not inherently rhythmic. I have no rhythm at all, but I do none. I got my, my partner tells me all the time. She's like, baby, you always off rhythm, but, but I'm all, but my body's always moving too. And what we, part of it is, is that even if I don't have rhythm, in black studies, we have this concept called fugitivity. It means that ultimately blackness is always moving and that black flesh is always moving. And sometimes it moves to a rhythm. Sometimes it doesn't, like in the case of someone like myself, sometimes it moves fluidly on basketball courts or sometimes it moves fluidly on presidential podiums or sometimes it moves fluidly within the context of, of, of different mediums. And so I, I say all that to say that part of, part of what you might have experienced, or at least what I've experienced when I've tried to dance, is the power of, of, of blackness's movement of, of and this is why when we talk about black lives matter i'm much more interested in black lives matter as a movement as the movement for black lives that it's not simply the static corpse that is produced in the street by a state sanctioned um, officer it is also the movement of flesh that marches and screams and chants and in those and in those streets in those places there's a choreography that's already operative one that is not limited just to people who happen to be black and so I just say all of that to say that that you experience the joy of a different kind of body work in my mind, the kind of body work that doesn't know how to name itself as body work. And we might actually call it flesh work. And I, I could talk about what that means. But but right now, I just wanted to both affirm and let you know, like, yeah, yeah, like the racism exceeds your intentions. We fall into it all the time. I love that analogy that you were saying how movement flows within the body. I mean, in some ways, I know we're kind of talking about how to, how do we honor the Black Lives Movement? But at the same time, I just kept on having this image of like, in the support of the movement, then we stop, then, then all races are moving together. I mean, you're kind of talking about the body and it's, birthright to be able to move and to flow. I mean, if, you know, if it, embryology, I mean, kind of, yeah, in the genetic code that's going to figure out its, its color of its skin. But 
when, when the two cells come together, it is this kind of pulsing rhythmic flow. The body, the body is first experience is movement. I, I, I have so much to say. I would say that, um, I, I, I rarely, so a friend of mine who actually did a, uh, it was actually at Esalen. He invited me to Esalen the first time. His name is Stephen Finley. He and I have multiple phone conversations. And one of the things that we have been thinking about um, is that the movement that you're talking about, something that exceeds the particularity of people who fall under the sign black. And I'm saying it that way specifically, like people who fall under that sign. Um, one of the things that you notice is that blackness exceeds the racial category that it is that it is constrained to. So if you look out into the sky at the middle of the night, um, you notice that that blackness actually conditions the universe, that actually it is darkness that that actually conditions movement. I'm only bringing that up to say that the very the very movement that you're discussing, the very movement that you're articulating that exceeds uh, the people who we call black actually is actually a condition for everyone that blackness is a condition that blackness conditions all movement and we call it metaphysical blackness but that's a philosophical term i don't mean it in the like oh let's ascend to the higher heights and to the i actually mean i actually mean that it is a principle of being that blackness is the principle of condi of, of, of existence that it's not necessarily racialized but because but when it becomes racialized it becomes a problem and when it becomes a problem people want to solve that problem and usually that involves killing it so i i, I just want to again just affirm you and say yes like on in the grand scheme of things you're absolutely right that embryos come together and that babies children uh infants small animals are formed in the darkness right this is the one thing that even religious traditions uh, point toward is that darkness conditions our possibilities blackness conditions our movement in our life uh and and but we don't read it that way we don't think of the myths in this way so the cosmogonies don't don't register like this until you actually think about it and then all of a sudden it's like oh no blackness is something that is disruptive and generative and wonderful and moving and joyous and scary and terrifying and and filled with pain and suffering and sorrow and all of those things so yes yes to the movement i see that movement is always and already black uh, for multiple reasons just to make sure we're on the same page, I and mean, there's again so much to just unpack there. I'm just thinking of like Judeo-Christian upbringings. The 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 Aramaic people would have been there would have been people thousands of years before. The first chapter of the, the the Bible is God created light, so everything before that would have been darkness before. That's somewhat what you're saying, right? I mean, I know, I know that's only a small part of it, but like I'm. That's precisely it. Yeah, I'm a little bit. Um, I usually talk more. There's just uh, a lot to take in. Th thankfully, thankfully. Um, I'm I, yeah, I'm rambling, but I just it's no. I love it. I love yeah, it. Y'all are saying um, things. If you don't mind, I'll hop in here and say just very briefly. Yeah. Certain translations of the of the Hebrew Bible of the Torah actually translate that first. So in the West, and this is why this is why I say anti-blackness or racism exceeds intention. In the West, we read that scripture as in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? And the spirit of the Lord, you know, and dark was over the face of the deep and the spirit of the Lord hovered over the waters, right? And so all of a sudden God says, let there be light. And all of a sudden, wonderful things happen. The actual Hebrew translation of it is when God began to create the earth. So in other words, darkness was always part of God. Like, and, I, and what we do in the West is we actually assume 
what's contradictory to what you just said, Andrew, which is at the end of the day, actually darkness has always been part of divinity. Blackness has always been part of the conversation of the divine. Blackness conditions life. Um, but we have sought, and, and you hear us do this all the time in our conversations in Vernet, well, you know, I'm going to a dark place. Or, whoo, that was a dark movie. Talking about, I don't know, like Saw. I don't know if y'all watched the Saw movies when they first came out. They were horrifying for me. Uh, I don't know if they were for you. Uh, but, but if, I mean, and if, even if you watch those movies, right? The aesthetic for the movies, there's a dark filter over the lenses. Everything's creepy. And, and, and such that we are trained to fear darkness. It's part of the mythical construct and, and eventually becomes part of our social psychology. It becomes an archetype for us. Right. I mean, this is why I think I mean, yeah, this is why when we think of when we think of criminals, it's not simply that we think of black folks. We think of criminals as black because we think of criminality and evil as darkness. Does that make sense? So there's this. It, it makes it makes sense. I, I, I remember having similar thoughts, trying to parse this together, not with people, but seeing this um, years ago, having this sort of why are things that are, quote unquote, bad of the the darker shade and things that are like oh you know i i need to i need to lighten up i need to feel like things that are good or are light even what is the sign like if you go into a lot of these pseudo spiritual cults uh, i'll just get in trouble for that one what do they wear they wear all white right they wear all white it's the 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 absence of anything which i would actually say the absence of anything is kind of boring and and actually there's no life in there because there's an absence but there's like there is that that opposite of um white is good black is bad that's there is a cult it's not even cultural it it exceeds cultures it's i mean even i i say this a lot i'm gonna get in trouble for this again too the word for africa and china so china is a completely different culture the word for africa is fejo which literally translates into backwards country reverse country because people are black there it's a reverse this is like if there's chinese scholars i know you're going to yell at me for this and you're going to say no it's not that but just look at the words so it's not just a cultural thing there is this greater thing that and i don't know where that started from um and i don't really care to some extent although i realize if you want to change something you have to find the roots but i am more concerned with how do you how do you change the dialogue how do you make it so i don't think anyone i don't honestly i love the idea of equality i don't see equality ever being a real thing because my idea, all three of us have a different idea of what equality is. And so you start to get in different perceptions, but I'd like to make things more equal uh, somehow. And I don't know how to, to do that, but I'd love to hear what you have to say. I, th I think equality sometimes does get to be a tricky word because you, I know for myself, like, I don't want everything to be the same. I want things to be fair and I want things to, uh, you know, I don't want harm onto anybody, but yeah, like, the, I like to go to the African dance because I like diversity. I like learning about things that are different from me. And I think within equality is also celebrating diversity and how we're all different. I'll say something in there, which I was going to, it's about myself too, which is that what I've learned, I, I played in um, gospel choir. I was the only white guy in gospel choir as a kid. I played in jazz bands. I, I was really involved with different cultures. And I, what I never realized until Black Lives Matter is I had the privilege to do all that. I had the privilege, and I'm not calling you out, Nikki. I mean, I agree with you, but it's like you have the privilege to go to these dance things. But people of different races and different colors don't always get the privilege to 
to do that when I'm just share that because I learned that recently. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes also, I mean, this is again, this is I, like I'm not interested. My mama would say I was raised right. So I'm not interested in, in denigrating folks. But what I would say is that also some, sometimes we don't prefer to to have the kind of diversity that that it that other folks prefer. Um, it's something that it, 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 it's not it's not that, oh, I'd want to be closed off so much as it is. There are certain coping mechanisms, given the history of blackness in the West and or the history of anti-blackness in the West, that sometimes what makes most sense to me, to us, to, to folks who I care about and love is to actually just move deeper into blackness itself, right? Not right to sort of say, look, we're gonna we're gonna stay here. Um, and we're gonna stay here in a way that opens up possibilities for us to to find refuge, to find care, to find possibilities. I say that to say I'm, I'm thinking of a because I, I can't get her off my mind. I'm thinking of Toni Morrison. She has a, a she has a whole bunch of books out. She has a novel called Beloved. And she so she has this she takes this scene that's called the clearing and she says um the, the character who's in the clearing is a preacher, black woman who couldn't read. Um, but she, she says here in this here place, we flesh, flesh that weeps and laughs, flesh that dances on bare feet in grass. Love it, love it hard. And I won't give the whole rest of the sermon that I might may or may not have um, uh, memorized. But what I will say is, is that um, what she's getting at there is that ultimately even for those of us who are black, who, who fall under the sign of blackness, for many of us, as lofty as equality sounds, and even as, as maybe, you know, pleasant as diversity sounds, we, I, I'll be frank, I'll just speak for myself here. It's neither something that I think is possible nor something that I've even come to prefer. What I've really come to prefer is clearing space for flesh to be loved for black flesh to be loved, for black flesh to love and to be loved. And I keep using that word because that becomes, for me, that becomes the ethical litmus test. Can you love black flesh? That becomes the ethical litmus test for anybody, black, non-black, otherwise. Can you love black, black flesh? Can you see black movement in the streets? And not and not, you know, I don't know, tisk 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 or or make or make subtle distinctions between rioters and looters and 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 peaceful protesters. Can you see black flesh moving in the streets and say, I I love that? Can you do it? I mean, and that's not like a question I put putting to both of you. I'm saying that becomes for me the ethical litmus test. And that doesn't mean that that white people cannot do that. What it means is that most white people I've come in contact with find it incredibly difficult to do so because that requires a level of risk a level of a level of engagement that would do that would significantly change and alter their lives and not for the better right i mean that becomes the question how and and even for someone like myself who's a professor now i mean back in the day when i was in the streets organizing yeah it was different it was like oh yeah black lives matter now you know i'm, I'm at a I'm at a pretty good school and have a pretty good job. And, and so I continued this work under the risk that I know that at the end of the day, if I love black flesh, this could and probably will cost me something. So that's my way of responding to, to, to part of, of what you were getting at. Yeah, I'm gonna share a story. The word flesh, I was teaching in Austria and I didn't speak, I don't speak German. And I said the word Fleisch because I thought Fleisch would take flesh. And it turns out Fleisch is only, flesh is only the meat that you eat. 
So you would never really say flesh as far as the human. So I, when I hear flesh I'm per, and I'm hearing black flesh, I'm personally going to like not a, a good place necessarily being hunted, which I can love because not the hunting, but of a human being being hunted is painful for me. But there was something in that that made me think of, so I, I went to a, I grew up in a pretty, it was a mixed middle class, middle, upper, lower mixture about everything. Pretty white town. We had, uh, we brought people in from Boston and I was friends with people wherever. And then time happens and you lose, you lose track with people. And then after Black Lives Matter, I, I started reconnecting. Uh, I had a friend who I reconnected with uh, because I cared about her and this was a chance to reconnect. And I did love her flesh. I, um, that if she's listening, I don't mean it in that way. And don't, please, I hope your husband doesn't hear that in any other way. But I, I mean, I did love her as a person. She's marvelous. But there's been a part of me that's saying, isn't this racist that I'm reaching out to you now because you're Black? I'm now creating this barrier. I mean, the benefit is, yes, we're connecting and we're reconnecting after 20 years. And that's great. And I'm having so many fun stories. And, and you know, she has Caribbean roots and she's going to cook me some of her Caribbean food because I love that sort of stuff. I'm down for some oxtail curry whenever I can get it. But the fact that the impetus was not necessarily that I saw her as a person. It was I saw her as someone struggling right now in this. And I, I guess for me, I, I'm struggling a bit of saying like, is that not racist? Is there not a sense of still seeing the person as, as a color instead of a person? I, I would say it's anti-Black, not so much that it's racist. I don't think of, and, I, and I, I'm, I'm not really interested in, again, I'm not, that, that's not a moral indictment. I really want us to, so if, the one thing that I wish I could disabuse white people of is, is, is understanding race as a moral problem. It's not. Um, it's, it's, it's an ethical one. It's a philosophical one. It shouldn't, it shouldn't instill shame. It should actually invoke responsibility. Um, I, I would all, but I would also say, again, this is why I say I'm not interested in assessing blame or placing fault in particular places. So I'll say two things to keep my comments coherent or like ordered for your audience. First thing I'll say in terms of, first thing I'll say in terms of um, what you just mentioned is it's anti-black, but it's anti-black for what I understand as religious purposes. You reached out to her because, because black flesh died. In other words, in the same way that, in the same way that, in other, in other words, you derived the benefit from the death of a black person. If you know if you if you know Christianity, you know that that is actually the struct the, the structure of salvation for Christianity itself is to derive a metaphysical benefit from the death of another. In other words, the this, the the salve the healing comes off the ba is because the violence has been displaced on somebody else. This is usually how anti-blackness works in this country. So let's move away from you, Andrew, and move toward to move toward Joe Biden who's easier to pick on because he's a presidential candidate um, and, and because he because because he's responsible for this. So he, in his in his acceptance speech, he mentions um, Gianna Floyd, George Floyd's daughter. And he says, you know, well, she came up to me and told me my daddy changed the world. And I have no qualms with a, with a young girl saying that she's trying to process a profound loss. What I have a problem with, what, what we should all have a problem with is, is, is us turning George Floyd into an unwilling martyr and into a sort of uh, an, un, an unwilling sacrifice for justice 
the better thing that should have happened is that he should be alive, that he shouldn't have had to change the world because George Floyd never wanted to change the world. But the country derives a benefit from him dying. It gets to cleanse its conscience. It gets to say, we reform the police. We've done something good. It gets to it gets to receive salvation on the basis of that. That's not necessarily on the basis of people's particular intentions. So that's the first point I want to make is that what you're what what you're feeling in terms of conviction is a larger religious structure of atonement that the country cannot shake. We kill black people because we need to, because we need to feel better about ourselves. That's how it works. That's the first thing. The second thing that I'll say, and something that's curious to me, um, is that I see color all the time and I see people. Um, so I see you all as white. Uh, and, and that neither, the, in other words, there's not a bifurcation between color and, and humanity for me. So it's not that I don't see color, it's that I see people who people who have color, right? And it's that I see those histories that are wedded to that particular color symbolism. That doesn't, and, and, this, and I also want to be clear here, this doesn't preclude me from having very intimate relationships with white people. One of my closest friends, and I'm going to sound like the other, the, the white liberal who says, oh, I've got a black friend, but I mean it. And one of my closest friends is a white person. Um, and and he, I, I love him to death. Absolutely do. Um, and, and, and my teacher is, is a Japanese woman. My, the woman who, who formed me, who made me a PhD, who busted my ass for years. I was writing my dissertation. A little short Japanese woman who was rigorous as hell and who loved me enough to not give me a pass because I was black. Um, and so she, she did this incredible work. And so I say all of that to say that those folks have invested in me. They have loved my black flesh as black flesh. I love how you say, this is the third thing I'll say. I love that flesh is animal, animal meat, right? I really do. It's, it's brutal for, it's brutal for everyone on this call, but it also materializes and actually lays bare the profound joy and sorrow of blackness in the West. Because on the one hand, animal meat is not actually an individual like like think like you can you like flesh is something that just flows it's just connection like like you we we make distinctions between oh these are the ribs or whatever the hell but it's really just part of an organism so there's always this open movement it's organic connection that flesh is so meat works the other part about it is is that meat also invites consumption and so you're absolutely right on the converse side too and that's part of the game um so, so i love that so one yes Absolutely. It's religious too. You can, you can get past this or maybe you, I don't know if you can, I don't know how it works, but loving black flesh is a way to go. And then number three, yeah, flesh is this odd, this odd conflation of, of, of consumption and, um, and sociality. Well, I, I will say that the second when you first got on and I saw your big smile, I, I fell in love with your black flesh. <laughs> you have such a, the people won't see because we only record the audio, but you have such a, you have such an embodied presence, actually. When you come on, who you are comes out so much. Of course, we're interacting through this Zoom medium, but there's, I mean, even right now, your smile, which is just infectious, uh, it shines through. It's interesting to me because you, you are such an embodied person, yet you speak about maybe having places of not having a place to be 
which makes me want to come back around to the beginning before we run out of time, which we probably will, which is what can we do? What can be done? Maybe it's not what we, because I know that's also a very, the big white thing. You know, when Black Lives Matter came on, I I made a post saying like any friends of mine who are, have uh, African roots or or black roots or whatever wording I used at that time, that was probably incorrect. I said, please let me know. And I'm happy to do some, to offer free meditation, offer free whatever. And someone was like, oh yeah, white person thinking you can just step on in and make things. And I was like, that's not my intent. But that being said, like, what can we as in humanity not just Nikki and I, two white people stepping in as white people, but what, what can humanity, what can we start to do to, to, to make a change, to, to add for embodiment, to add for movement practices, to add for body work, to, to go forward with that? I know you mentioned a little bit before. I mean, it's, it's always, I mean, I, like, I wish I'd, I had an answer to this question. I tell, I tell people not so tongue-in-cheekly that if I had an answer to this particular question, I would be a trillionaire. I'd be richer than Jeff Bezos. Um, I would be loaded. But but and what what I can say though is is that um, I, I I'll break it down into a few things. One, I think recognition is necessary, and what I mean by that is rec- recognizing that what we want to call injustice is actually its opposite. It's good. We have to recognize that what's happening to Black people is sanctioned. It is important, and if this world is to continue the way that it does, we have to recognize that it will continue to happen. Like changes, the transformation that we're asking for, or that folks like myself are asking for, require nothing less than the dissolution of this world and the creation of another one. That's not that's not me trying to be radical. That's not me saying, "Ooh, like I'm just you know burn everything down." It's just so. It's just that we've tried everything, everything under the sun, and we're still in the same position. That's the first thing. The second thing that I'll say is that is that it requires risk. I can't tell you what that risk means for folks who are who are white because I live risk. I live it all the time, so I don't know what it's like to voluntarily incur risk. What I can say is is that what I can say is is that whatever that looks like, loving black flesh is risky. That's all I can say. There's a woman in this this narrative that I was talking about in Beloved. In Beloved, there's this white girl. Um, her name is Amy Denver. And the main character of the book is is running away to freedom. She's an enslaved black woman who's running away, but she has to deliver. Um, she had just delivered this baby, um, but she had run away. Um, and her and before she'd run away, her master her master had beat her brutally. Um, and Amy Denver was was called her all types of horrible things, but at the end of the day, took responsibility for this black woman and took care of her, nursed her back to health so that she could run to run further to freedom. Uh, her name was in, in the book. Her name is Amy Denver and Setha, the primary, the protagonist names her daughter Denver in honor of this white girl, not because this white girl is a hero or a heroine or a savior, but because she was ethical and she took a risk. She did that thing and moved on. So there's risky work that it, that is that is connected to this. Um, so I would say assess your risk and then and then take it on. That's the next thing. I think the third thing is 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 one of the things that that this that the Western world um, struggles with is its allegiance to a Christian narrative, even when it even when people aren't Christian. I, I, I'm not Christian enough for Christians, but I'm too Christian for atheists, if that makes sense. Um, so, so like, you know, there's too much Buddha in my, in the way that I move and not enough, like all of this to say, even though we don't like to call ourselves Christians in the West, or some of us don't call ourselves Christians in the West, what happens is, is that there is Christianity structures our ethics. 
And what I'm trying to point out here is, is that on the one hand, we can talk about anti-blackness as an atonement theory of salvation, which is what I was talking about. The West needs black people for in order as sacrificial matter to save itself. The other side of this though, is what we like to call white savior narratives. And the problem with white savior narratives is not that white people are out here trying to do the work. The problem is, is that white people are out here doing the work and demanding that we give them credit for it. So, so, and this is, this in my mind goes back to a Christological logic that Jesus requires that we glorify him in, in the wake of his death as he resurrects and transfigures, right? It's important that we do that. Um, and so white people ask us to do the same thing for them when they show up in the streets with us. Oh, we're marching for you. Yes, you are. That's the end. <laughs> there, there is no, there is, there's not necessarily a thank you involved in that. There is only the sociality that erupts in that moment and then we move and then we move forward does that does yeah. that i mean that, totally. i mean that that is what i saw i mean it's a struggle with me i, I don't really care about getting recognition but i i process a lot through vocab so like a lot of times i'll talk about something and it's not about getting recognition it's just how i process but as this whole movement's work i mean this whole movement's been going for a while but as it sort of broke out again around george floyd watching my yoga narratives of, of white women, exactly like you said. And I was just like, uh, there was something, something missing within it. And I think I don't, I don't fully agree with a lot of what uh, Abraham Kendi says. It didn't, I, I mentioned earlier, I like Glenn, I, I follow a little more about Glenn Lowry and, and other, other black intellectual narratives that, and, and maybe it's because they reinforce my beliefs, but it's, I think it's because they, take bigger pictures at hand. But I was watching a lot of people talk about white fragility, which is sort of, it's great, but they're sort of doing it being like, look at me. Um, and it's like, it's not about you though. It's not about you at all. So struggling within this sort of thing, maybe I'm missing something you know, along the way. And then luckily hearing people like you and being like, oh, okay, no, I'm, you know, it's not, I'm not fully missing it. I've got some stuff I'm missing, but okay, that's, yeah. All, all, I'll add, all I'll add here is, I know we're coming up on time. All I'll add here is that there's a reason why Abram Kendi is, is, is as loaded as he is at this point, is as well recognized. There's a reason why Robin D'Angelo, for better or for worse, is a millionaire. And it has a lot to do because those two authors, and I think it it's actually has nothing to do with their intentions. Um, I think they they are well-intentioned as hell. And this, this will probably transition me to my last point. But what's happening is, is that what they're doing, the text that they're writing, so stand, by, stand from the beginning is not that bad. It's, it's the how to be an anti-racist text from Kendi that, that raises questions. And white fragility is also a difficult text too. And the, but the problem with both of those texts is that they make people feel good in the process. They assuage a certain kind of prophetic honesty, right? But they also, they also, there's this thing about, well, if you're not with us, you prove our point. There's this whole catch 22 built right. into it as well. Yeah. Right. You're absolutely correct. And I think at the end of the day, you're, you're dealing with, um, yeah, you're, de you're dealing with a group of folks who are on the one hand assuaging a large swath of people, but then on the other hand being absolutist about their disposition to assuage a large swath of folks. Um, and, and so they would say the proof is in the pudding, white people are changing, they're advocating for different policies. But my question to Kendi, um, not so much D'Angelo, I, I don't really know how to, I don't really know how to process her yet, but, but my question to Kendi is, is let's say we shift the policy so cops put their knee on my back instead of my throat now? I mean, what's the difference? Like, like I'm still gonna feel. Oh, I didn't die, but my, you know, my back is bruised. I mean, Freddie Gray got died in the back of a paddy wagon. 
they didn't choke him out. He just happened to be cuffed and they just called, they gave him what they call a quote unquote rough ride. We have, we have things on the books now that are, that are meant to stop some of this stuff, policies that are meant to quit this. And so I, I totally agree with you that, yeah, they, they reinforce that. This takes me to the next point, and this is exceeds their, 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 it, it exceeds their intentions. The other thing that I would say that we can do, and this is something that's very difficult even for me, is we have to stop thinking of people as bodies, as bodies housing souls. What do I mean by that? I don't mean that in the sense that we don't have souls. I don't know. I, well, I'll figure out when I die what goes down, right? As for projections, one thing, a soul is another thing, right? I, I'm that like, but my, my point in all of this is, is that we, when we think about bodies, when we think about ourselves as bodies having souls, we immediately go to the question of intention and motivation. That's how the criminal justice system is set up. Well, what was their intent? What was your intent when you did harm? And as soon as we do that, as soon as we produce a soul, we actually produce the, a legal soul. We produce the possibility of absolving some people who have done some heinous things. And we produce the possibility of absolving them of the violence that they've committed. I'm not interested in, in motivations. I'm interested, I'm, as, as my partner tells me all the time, she said, I don't know what you mean. I know what you said. I don't know what you mean. I know what you did. Right. And we joke all of it, but that, but that's what it comes down to. And we have to address that harm, right? We have to address that harm. And for me, that actually doesn't require punishment. I mean, like, I'm not interested in people like, oh, arrest the cops that, 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 um, that killed Breonna Taylor. I'm, I, that's not, that's not what I'm, I'm interested in. I'm actually interested in why can we find a world where we don't need cops to be doing anything like SWAT team work in the first place? What were the conditions that, allowed for them to show up? That's the question. How do we eliminate the capacity for them to exist in the first place? That's a better question to ask. So I say all that to say like, let's move beyond the production of a soul and move into how do we create actions and structures that, that, that abolish the necessity for some of these punitive structures. And I think honestly, I think body works part of that. I, 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 I'll finish with this. One of my, not guilty, but one of my scariest attractions is an image of Tik Kong Duk. I don't know if you all know who he is. He's a Buddhist, he's a Buddhist monk who was protesting the oppression of Buddhists. I believe it was in Vietnam. Uh, the, the one who did a self-immolation? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, and, and what, what strikes me about that, I don't know if you ever, if you all have watched the, the video, I've watched the video way too many times, but what, if you watch it, everyone else is bawling. Right. I mean, all the monks are they're losing their shit. Forgive me. They are crying. They are at, they are losing it. But if you watch him, he's so in his body that he's just calm. Because he knew what he was doing. And it shows in that moment what happens if for me. Don't know how this I don't know how to, to see it for anyone else. But for me, what that shows me is he wasn't interested in being a savior. He wasn't interested. He wasn't interested in being anybody's like, like sacrifice. What he was doing was, was showing as brutal as it was, he was making clear the violence that was showing up throughout that country already. But he was in his body when he did it. So he was able in a way that none of us on, on the West that I know was able to bear that brutality um, because he was acutely aware he was grounded. So I think body work allows for that kind of grounding, that kind of awareness, that, that kind of clear sightedness to say, look, 
here's where we are. Here's what we got to do. Here's where, here's where the risks are going to happen. We have to be ready for it. So those, those are my thoughts. Um, I don't know. I, that was a lot, but yeah, that, those are my thoughts in terms of this. No, it's great. I think as you, as you've been talking, especially about the body and everything, it really brings up, um, somatic practices. Somatic is about being in your body, feeling, feeling yourself. And I think, I mean, you've shared so many wonderful things. I'm still kind of just digesting it, but I think, and it's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say it and I'm still kind of holding that contemplation of like so many people had to be sacrificed. So many people had to die for people. I mean, the black lives movement, you know, what the atrocious things that were happening in the States, it, it, it is a little mind blowing how that, was being represented in you know across the world where everybody globally started marching and and in that maybe there were some people that were kind of looking for their their humanitarian humanitarian trophy of like oh look i'm out there marching but i think overall though coming into the place of to deeply love to love skin black skin for some people, it's not going to be love at first sight. There has to be conversation. There has to be rapport. And I think that's kind of what's happening is people are, especially white people, are starting to recognize that of their privileges and how, how it's unjust that other people, that we get it because of how we are born. And I mean, it's interesting because I, just a kind of a quick short story that happened fairly recently here in Boulder. It's, pretty white and um we're at my neighborhood pool and i'm talking to a woman and um, she and her husband are professors uh i'm gonna somewhere in the southern states and it's a prestigious school sorry and but they adopted a black boy and he's autistic and he is kind of coming on to like preteen age and they moved from the southern states to hear because she was like, even in our nice neighborhood, their son was getting picked on. And she's like, I didn't feel safe for my son to be growing up there because what are they gonna think of a black man wandering around the streets with him being autistic, not his actions kind of being unpredictable. She's like, he was already being spit on, name called. And, and, and it was just, when we were having this conversation, I grew up in the South, so there's some things that I, I could relate with. And um, and I just, it was just still shocking to hear how this happens to somebody, even though I'm very aware of what I'm seeing in the news, but to like, I don't, I'm not confronted with a lot of this because again, I live in a very white community, we're all kind of walking in our white privilege and then sitting there having this conversation with a mother that she's fearing the the life of her child who's just walking around living his life and I'm you know I don't have that fear necessarily for my two young kids I have different fears of creepy pedophiles but I'm not fearing that they're just going to get shot because of where they are and what they look like 
I think, I, I mean, I, well, I appreciate you sharing that. I, I, I mean, there's so many thoughts rolling through my head right now. I think the first thing that I would say is it's not shocking. The, the story that you told is not shocking to me, but it's also not shocking to me that you're shocked, if that makes sense. Right. So, so it's. Right. And I think that we sorry to interrupt, but I think that's what's happening in this white recognition is that we're like, like, wow. Mm -hmm. Again, like I said, like embodying it in a totally different way instead of being like, oh, that's terrible news. And then going on along with their day, like really embodying being like that, that is deeply wounding. I, 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 and all I can say, I mean, I wish I could. I don't even know how I read a lot. I'll, I'll, I'll try to frame it this way. Uh, I have a couple of things that are going through my mind, um, but I'll, I'll frame it this way. Um, I'm sitting in a chair right now. And um, this is a, this is an example I use with my students all the time. I call my students, my babies. So, and they know that. So there, it is what it is. They're, they're 18 to 22 years old too. So me calling them my babies, they're like, yo, this is ridiculous, Dr. Gray. But anyway, so I, um, so I'm sitting in a chair right now and, uh, and, and, and the chair is designed to hold me up, right? It's just designed to do that. That's what it's designed to do. If this chair broke, I would be shocked, right? Cause it's designed to hold me up. It's designed to hold my weight. It's designed to be here for me, be available for me. If the chair broke, I would freak out. Like what happened? What, why did the leg go right that's the first thing the other thing that would shock me is that the chair actually like started talking to me and being like bro i'm sick of this shit like you're heavy right like you can't i'm tired like i'm tired of holding this and so what we're noticing right now is what we're noticing right now metaphorically is that the chairs are either breaking in this country or they're saying i'm tired and it's shocking for a lot of people because it not because they're 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 ill and they're they're malicious. This is like like I'm not sitting in a chair like hey yo yo this chair is horrible like I'm just gonna mess its life up. No, it really is. I I, I see a chair and I sit down. I, I I do this and and this is just kind of the way that my day moves through the world. Um, I, I to make it even more to make it a bit less abstract or and a bit more closer to home. I know I got a, I got a job at uh, I, I, I teach at Syracuse University, and um, I know some of the folks who who applied for the job I have. Right, I, none of them are black women, but some of them are women. Um, and so for me, I, I go into this and I think to myself, well, I got this job because I'm a pretty smart guy and I talk pretty well and I'm pretty good at my job and pretty good at teaching and research and all. And so it, it's and so it, it strikes it, it would be striking to me, right, if somebody was like, well, actually, there was a gender d- dynamic to me, dynamic to it. If I because like, because initially I would have been like, well, you know, I just the best person got the job. But the truth of the matter is, is that that's not necessarily the case. The most charismatic person got the job, the most uh, sort of. Um, how do I say the, the person who radiates the most affect got the job. And oftentimes we read charisma on gen- in gender terms. So whereas what looks like passion and charisma for me shows up as such for someone else who's passionate, it might show up otherwise. And so and so I I shared that to say that 
part of what, what we have to do. And that's why I say recognition is so important. And you're right. I don't know how we bring people into that recognition. I don't know how you, because I'm not interested in massaging feelings. I'm not going to intentionally hurt your feelings, but I'm also not going to, um, I'm also not going to handhold you either. I'm going to say, look, we have work to do. You got to get with me or you don't. And it's okay if you don't get with me, I'm still going to care. I'm always, the invitation is always going to be available. Um, so I say all that to say that like, for me, I don't know how we bring people into that so much as just to say, Hey, chairs are, chairs are talking back right now. They're, they're, they're literally saying it's been heavy. You're heavy. I'm tired and it sucks and I'm tired. And what you're noticing as is the case, if my chair started talking to me, I would probably throw this chair over and just throw it away. And we're seeing the same thing happen to people in the country. If your chair was talking, well, I would keep that. I would put down the news. You'd be a trillionaire again. You'd be above base. So you'd be like, I got a talking chair, you know? But no, we always say this, be respectful of your time. We are over. We have more time, but I do want to respect your time. Say, so if you got to balance, you got to balance. But to say, I mean, how I hear what you're saying is, is belief systems. It comes down to that. We have a belief, you have a belief system that this chair will hold you. Your belief system does not have that it'll talk back, that it'll um, it'll break, it, it's that it'll hold you. It might have that it'll break a little bit, so you kind of move yourself around a little bit, but you have a you have a system in place, a, a perceptual belief system, and the same is for us. So uh, prior to a year ago, our belief system was not that an autistic black kid would be in trouble. It would not be that any of the, the other things that I've gone through that I've talked about before, it's not a, about me, so I don't have to keep talking about my own experiences. But now we're expanding our belief system. We're having that dialogue to sort of say, hey, the chair is talking back. The autistic black kid is not safe. The uh, George Floyd was not safe. Uh, whatever the, 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 there's thousands of things. And, and so I'm going to throw something out there that I experienced, uh, I think, yesterday, two days ago. I, I was working with a client who um, is of South Asian descent uh, and actually is European by, by birth. And I had just been talking with a friend of mine about different race relation things, and it was the first time. So I, I was one of the people who would say I didn't see color. It wasn't that I didn't see color. It's that I didn't react to color. Obviously, I can see you're black, but I don't see, I see people, right? Okay, that's a privilege. I get it. I was working with him, and it was the first time I, when he, he was of Indian descent, I could see he's brown skin. But I, I saw him and sort of said, well, what's the backstory there? What has this person gone through? Which I think should be for everyone. I don't think it should. I mean, clearly there's more going on, but it's not like I should only do it with people with darker color skin. I should be doing it with everyone. When, when a white person comes into me, you say, what's that backstory there? It's the whole thing. Every life does matter. Black lives matter a little more right now, that sort of thing. But does that narrative of, okay, Biko, you know, Biko Mandela Gray, which is the best effing name. I mean, it's, it's like your parents were like, this guy is going to be a, a fighter. Steve Biko and Nelson Mandela. I mean, I'm sure there's someone famous gray, but we'll leave those out for now. But like, is that, I guess, in a way, does that also then make it racial profiling? When I come in and I have a, and Biko comes to see me and I'm like, I'm seeing you, but I'm also seeing the fact that your presumably ancestors came over on slave ships at some point. I mean, obviously nowadays, Black African-American might not actually be slavery American. It may be like, yo, I'm from Nigeria. My parents moved here a year ago. Uh, you know, it's changed a lot, but bringing that in, does that not also bring a sense of profiling, although it's in a good way, right? It's still like, and I'm asking a thing for myself, but also for other people who are trying to, to make change and to see and to make a greater world while still not creating this bigger 
what's the word like not dichotomy but a split of sorts um or or was i doing a good thing i don't know i mean so we're gonna we're gonna get in the weeds here if you all don't mind for a second um i'm trained in a specific kind of philosophy uh and it's a specific kind of um ethical it's a specific kind of philosophical tradition that's about experience. It's the fancy word for it is phenomenology, but I'm, phenomenology I'm, is. Yeah, I'm reading yeah. a book on Merlot Ponty right now. Oh, and it's well, just then, like, oh well, then, well, then you're then you're going to be fine or somewhat fine with what's about to come out of my mouth. Uh, many people, particularly people in spiritual circles, have gotten the word phenomenology, and I mean something very different um, by it because. Aside from folks like you who've read Merleau-Ponty, we typically think of phenomenology as a kind of like spiritual ascent work. And I, I that yes to that, but that's not what I'm doing. Um, one of the thing, one of the philosophers who I read um, was a Jewish man who lost his entire family during the Nazi Holocaust. His name was Emanuel Levinas. His teacher, ironically enough, was Martin Heidegger, who was a Nazi. And, and Emmanuel Levinas makes a particular claim, a very specific one, one that I think, even as I am critical of some of his other work, a claim that I find to be um, useful in moments like this when people are wondering about perception and lenses and seeing skin color and, and questions of profiling. Levinas puts it this way. If you see something that is brown and tall and green, and it has these things poking out of it that are green and it has these things that are going deep into the ground. If you name that thing as a tree, you've already done violence to it because you've developed a category for it on the basis of your own perception. I say that to say it doesn't mean that that violence is not always present or not always necessary. Sometimes it is. I mean, I, we wouldn't be able to communicate if we didn't have words. And so in a certain way, the, the, the violence of the of linguistic constraint is a perpetual threat. It just is what it is. What you can do is try your best, as he says, to let the otherness of the other shine through. And what that means for him is being hospitable to the other. This is where it gets risky, right? This is where things get risky. Because for Levinas, that hospitality, he calls it being held hostage by the other, that hospitality is absolute for him. I'm not with him on that, because I ain't, I ain't I, like, I'm sorry, I can't let everybody in my house. But his point in all of this is, is that his point in all of this is, is that conceptually, perceptually, in terms of our belief systems, we have predetermined categories that we use to determine the meaning of a life. We do it all the time. Um, I don't mean this in an implicit bias way. That's not what I'm getting at right now. I'm not interested in, ooh, everybody's racist. I don't care about that conversation. What I'm pointing out here is that there are categorical structures that, that literally govern the way that we see the world. And what Levinas says is that there, there is one, there's one thing that shows up in the world that actually disrupts those categories. And that is the face of another. The face of another person, another animal, whatever, of, of an other. Because the face exceeds meaning. Right. That's the thing that is so important here. And so if you assign a meaning to an expression on a face, if you look at my face and assume that I'm angry and I've never given you and, and all I've done is I might have wrinkles in my forehead or whatever the case may be. Then what happens is, is that you've now done categorical violence to me 
the death's already, all you gotta do at that point is just pull the trigger. So if you look at people like at Timothy Lohman, I keep coming back to him. What he saw was 5'8", black skin, 185 pounds. He knows that means black man. Couple that with the 911 call that says this person might have a gun. And you've got a categorical, you already have a categorical structure of perception that says this person's a threat. He has to go. This is not something you think through. This is something that happens because he, he doesn't have to think about it. My point in this is to say that what I would encourage your listeners to think about is not trying to disabuse themselves of, 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 of seeing color, not saying they see people first and color second, or they see people with co- what, at what point in time, I, I would suggest people move away from trying to ascertain the meaning of the person who's next to them, who is coming in front of them. Let them talk to you. Embrace the language. Embrace the conversation. Embrace the discourse. Embrace the way that they speak to you. Not just, not just in terms of the words itself, but literally embrace the fact that they, and, and embrace the fact that they may say, I don't want to talk. Be vulnerable enough to allow, irrespective, and this is the ethical move here, irrespective of one's own proclivities, presuppositions, hey, not even what do you need, just hey. That's all I got. I mean, that's how how I think, I mean, honestly, that's how I think about it. So, yeah. Yeah, I really feel like that is such a good place to really just leave it almost, Uh, not even almost, it is. Everything was great, but that last part really, I think, was what I was looking for. Uh, not just because of getting really into phenomenology and you, you know, ticked off my list, but I also just need to really absorb all that. There's just, you know, luckily in a few days I'm going to go through and edit everything, and get to hear it again. You know, I need a, I need a like a nap right now just to like. <laughs> It's totally yeah. fair. I, I look my. I forgive me for it, my students. No, no, it's perfect. I mean, that, that's the reason when I heard you and I, I said, "This is exactly what this is. What I want to hear. This is what I need to learn, and this is what I want to share. More importantly, this is what I want to share. I want people to hear this because I, I think it needs to be heard. It needs to be shared. It needs to be heard. Well, in that last bit, I mean, I know we we were kind of staying focused on Black Lives Matter, but you know that is that is. And I don't know this thing of uh, phenomenology. It's new to me. I know I've heard Andrew talk about it a little bit. But I couldn't help just starting, like, my brain was going through all these different slides of, like, how this is a, should be, like, a worldview of, of everything, in a way. Of, again, taking a moment. And, of course, we do need to define things to have like you already kind of said that but to really allow life to come to you before you start going after it with projections and stories and beliefs and like let let a a being regardless of what their color is their culture gender um and just be and be open to to the dialogue that can come without any kind of pre preconceived ideas. And I think, you know, in, in a way, like in Rolfing, in the art the particular type of work, uh, there's a lot of training with students to teach somebody how to 
do body reading. Of course, we're looking for how the, you know, how looking for imbalances and things like that. But to be able to really do that and to see the whole body, there's something in the focus where it really is taking time to allow the whole body to come to you and not be so laser focused on like their imperfections and, and also appreciating like, all right, they may walk differently, but does, is that really, is where, is there still function? You mean someone who's scoliosis will walk funny, but they can still have great function. So you're not, you're not defining somebody on a structure essentially taking it to what a picture book, you know, anatomy books, you know, has us all like perfectly stacked, but that's not really how bodies are. But I, I think I also like when I saw you and I mentioned this earlier, I said, anyone who sees you can see this smiling, happy thing, thing, person, flesh that there is, I think there is a sense of communication. Like, is that, that you are allowing yourself to, to be seen that way. So there is a communication partly within that. Although there still is a judgment on my, on my part or, or whether it's implicit or not of like, Oh, this looks what I see. This looks like a loving, happy person to me based on my experiences. And I, I get, you still have to let that come out. Although there is a sense of, I cannot talk to you and show you different expressions uh, and have communication within that. Um, there is a, there's, a, there's someone you actually might be interested in. He was a rolfer, which is what Nick and I both studied. And he was a prof uh, professor of philosophy at Purdue years ago who had a life-changing rolfing experience, became a rolfer himself, and writes books on somatic ontology uh, and really interesting, interesting stuff. That's what piqued my interest into this to go into it. And it may be interesting as well to explore Tom's name. That. You haven't said his, Oh, yeah. His name's Jeff Maitland. I, uh, but the thing I was going to say going on, we, well, we talk about Christianity, and, and for sure, I mean, again, growing up Jewish, I still recognize as a Judeo Christian world that we live in. Uh, and even though I spend a lot of time in Asia and get Buddhist principles and all that sort of stuff, I think the reason what has to do more as far as why we don't think in the way, like Nikki was saying, why don't we think in this way, it has to do with Descartes has to do with the fact of the separation of body and mind and, and a lot of that Cartesian logic, which is so unfortunately brought into our education and our schooling. And so if we really do want to start to change stuff, there's a lot to do, but also it's that education and it's getting, starting to see beyond, uh, on, beyond Descartes. And I just, I just learned, we all know, I think therefore I am. I never knew that that was a part of another proof of which the like second part of the proof is basically like, there's a devil behind me and the devil is making me do this. That is actually a part of the proof. I mean, Biko, you can talk more about that, which is just asinine. But what gets known is, I think therefore I am. Well, no, everything before that actually, that gets lost. I mean, you can, you don't have to, we've already got them way over time, which we're cool with. But part of the fact is it's our, I don't love the word systemic because of what it cannot imply, but it's the systemic educational system that we're brought up to be with. And there has to be a shift. I don't have a good word, should have, again, words fail us. A shift in education in terms of lots of stuff, one being the bringing more phenomenology understanding into that, into the, our education would be a shift because we wouldn't be seeing the same dualistic framework. I'll, I'll cut it off there because I'm going to keep going. 
but no, no, no. And don't, you don't have to apologize so much about words. I mean, that's, that's, that's both the joy and the, and the brutality and the burden of words. I love words and I hate them at the same time because they don't, they don't do what you want them to do, particularly when in prose, they just don't. Poetry is another story, uh, but, but prose is just hard. Uh, what I was going to say was just to respond very briefly to this. Um, actually, my dissertation, my first chapter, uh, it had, this all got gutted from the book version of the of the diss, but um, Descartes was central to it. And, you know, the and the basic and the basic move here, you're absolutely right, is that Descartes is trying to find like certitude. He wants to be certain. He wants to make sure that uh, he wants to know what truth is. And so he has to presume that nothing that he's seen up until that point or nothing that the meditator in the meditations has seen up until that point um, is, is, is false, right? So, you know, if you go to sleep, you have dreams that feel real, right? If you, if you hit the wrong LSD or if you take too much LSD, things show themselves in very odd ways, right? And so, like, all of a sudden, perception is not something you can trust in terms of knowing things. And so he wants to presume or the meditator presumes, hey, look, well, if I can't trust this, perhaps there's a demon on my shoulder that's messing with me, that that's actually like making me not see things. The, well, the one. And so then so then we have to ask the question, well, then what do we know? And the one thing that this meditator ends up saying is that what I know is that I'm thinking. Right. What I know is that I'm thinking. And so I think therefore I am has become like a weird mantra where people like tattoo it on their like like self-help mantra. Like, oh, my God, if you just think yourself into it, it's you're going to you're going to be it. That's not what Descartes meant at all. What he meant was if I think, then I know I exist. Like, in other words, if I have a mind, I know I exist because my body will fail me. Right. My like if you if it's too hot outside, I might see a mirage. Right. And yet, and so what we did, you're right in terms of education, what we ended up doing is bifurcating the person in general in that way, such that education became the structuring of the mind over and against and the disciplining of the body, right? The structuring of the mind and the disciplining of the body over and against the embrace of the flesh, which is thinking, moving, doing all of these things. Once you split the mind from the flesh, it becomes very easy to make what we like to call racialized distinctions, right? That at the end of the day, this is why we... <laughs> This is why perhaps this might be why our, our current president loves to talk about his IQ, uh, because because per, because intellect has been associated with a particular racialized and gendered subject and embodiment has been associated with racialized and gendered subjects. So all of that to say that, yeah, I think therefore I am is not a mantra to be embraced, but instead a cautionary tale about what happens when somebody decides that they don't want to hear from anybody else. That's the first thing I'll say. Second thing, I'll just I'll just say this just briefly. I, 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 I this is probably more for your listeners than it is for for you to. Uh, people are going to fail at this work. I fail at this work. Everyone fails at this work. Anyone who thinks that they're going to get it right the majority of the time is disillusioned, and they need to disabuse themselves of of that. So moving forward, the question is not so much what can we do? The question is, what happens when we fail? Do we stop there? What happens when I say the wrong thing? What happens when I do the wrong thing? What happens when I make the wrong decision or the least effective or the least fruitful decision? Because that's where the work happens. And so as Cornel West likes to say, you fail and you fail better. You just keep failing better. 
And if I could, and if I could just share that with your listeners, as I guess, I guess as a final note, you're never going to get it right. I never get it right. None of us ever get it right. But the whole goal in this is to just continue to fail better. We messed up. Let's try again. We messed up. Let's try one more time. We messed up. We're going to try again. Right. And so I just want to encourage you all just to like, and your listeners to, to sit in that, like, no, don't, don't get caught up in this, this paralyzing shame. That's not effective for anybody. And quite frankly, I will run away when I see white shame, I leave, I run because I can't deal with it. I don't know what, I don't know how to handle handle that. I become an emotional mirror or an emotional like garbage can at that point. And so mm-hmm. I don't want to do that. So I fail and fail better. That's what I would let folks know. Yeah, although I, I'm going to put one caveat there and correct me if I'm wrong. It's not about getting it right, right? So that's the thing is that we keep thinking it's right and wrong and keeping in that dualistic. So it's like, yeah, we're, your failing is right. And you're going to feel better next time. And that's going to be right. And it's yep. just sort of changing changing that. Yep. Yeah, yep. definitely. I mean, I'm glad you said it that way. I really appreciate you saying that way that like, we, we think in terms of right and wrong. And, and mm-hmm. in my mind, you're typically, what you're usually dealing with is better or worse or, or, or more or less effective, more or less fruitful as, as the Buddhists might say, right? And so like there, you know, how do we think about more fruitful action, more fruitful ways of engaging over and against these ways that we know will, will kill people? So yes. Yo, I wish I could stay on. Yeah, yeah. no, no, we, we, we're so thankful. We will, uh, people can find you on Twitter. I'll share your Perfect. information. Dr. Gray, thank you so much. This has been awesome. And I can't wait to share you with the world. I really thank appreciate it. Thank you so it. much. I've had a blast. Y'all have a yeah. wonderful day, okay? You too, yeah, sir. you too. Take Bye. care. Thank you for listening to us at Touching Into Presence. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. You can find out more about Dr. Gray at twitter.com slash Gray. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd appreciate it if you'd leave a positive review of the podcast and subscribe to it through the platform of your choice. When you do this, it really helps other people find us, and we greatly appreciate your support. We look forward to hearing back from you and seeing you on our next conversation at Touching Into Presence. Bye-bye.